Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do put ourselves under your authority, even as the Lord Jesus himself put himself under your authority. And we put ourselves under his authority, the Lord Jesus, and the living word of God. And we thank you, Lord, that you've not left us as orphans, but that you've given us the Bible, and you've given us the church, the body of Jesus, the bride of Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that we would learn today to love the Bible even more fully as we love your church, as we seek to, Lord, follow you throughout this Lent, throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. My wife, uh, Catherine, had the um, opportunity to teach developmentally disabled children in Oak Park many, many years ago. And she was going through a true-false exercise with her students. And she had one student, Robert, who was especially vocal. And so he was getting to the questions first. And she would, so she would say, for example, um, uh, a man can wear a hat. And Robert went, true. A dog can meow. And Robert went, false. And then she said, a man can eat breakfast alone. And Robert said without missing a beat, false. Catherine said, hold on now, Robert, let's think about this. Listen to me carefully. A man can eat breakfast alone. Robert said with even more passion, false. And Catherine, Robert, listen to me. Okay, so he comes down the stairs. He's got his robe on. He shuffles over to the refrigerator. He pulls out milk. He gets cornflakes. He puts them in a bowl. I mean, a man can eat breakfast alone. And Robert said, Mrs. Ruck, a man cannot eat breakfast alone. No one should ever eat breakfast alone. And Catherine went, oh, he's developmentally abled. I think I know what he's saying. Now, can a person eat breakfast by themselves, logically speaking? Of course. But should anyone ever eat alone, even though you may eat by yourself, even when you're eating by yourself, should you not be eating as part of a larger community or part of a larger roommate situation or part of a larger family? Is anybody ever really, to Robert's point, supposed to be alone? So let me give you class this morning a true-false a Christian can read the Bible alone. I'll give you the answer. False. You can't read the Bible alone. And let me be very clear. You can absolutely read the Bible by yourself. Indeed, much of your Bible reading will be done by yourself. I hope you have a habit of what's called quiet time or devotions or devos or morning prayer where you read the Bible and try to read it every day. I hope that's one of your practices, and you may be doing so by yourself. But even then, when you're reading the Bible by yourself, what we understand as followers of Jesus who are part of this incredible, dazzling, profoundly diverse, and yet unified under one God entity, the church, we never read the Bible alone. Christians read Scripture as sons and daughters. I want you to think about Scripture in a relational and familial way. We read Scripture as sons and daughters. Here are my two points this morning. Sons and daughters of our Father in heaven and sons and daughters of our spiritual grandparents. I don't expect you to understand that immediately. I'll explain it. Sons and daughters 
of our Father in heaven and sons and daughters of our spiritual grandparents who have gone before us. All right, if you have a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your bulletin, go there to Ephesians chapter 2. That's the passage we're going to work out of this morning. And we're going we're gonna to work. So I, I hope you had a vente. I hope you had your second. Um, I hope you didn't give up coffee for Lent. And if you did, you can still have it on Sunday, right? Did Father Aaron tell you that, that Sunday is a feast day? Or did he kind of keep that from you? All right? So we are going to do some work, okay? So I need you to lean in and engage because we're going to work, work hard and do some Bible work this morning. The book of Ephesians is a book about many things, and it's definitely what one would call a church book. So I'm assuming some of you read Ephesians 100 times, and I'm assuming some of you have never read Ephesians. That's my assumption. So just to get into it, it's a church book, and it's a closeness book. It's a book about spiritual closeness, closeness to God, closeness to one another, closeness in the church, the family of God, the household of God, as the writer, whose name is Paul, will call it in the section we read this morning, Ephesians 2. This is the first Sunday of Lent. And the first Sunday of Lent, traditionally, now we, we, we didn't do that this morning, the scriptures read where Jesus goes into the wilderness, and to survive the wilderness, he relies on the word of God. The church gives you that gospel passage every year because as you go into Lent, the only way you're going to make it through Lent as you reflect on the profundity of who you are in your sinful nature, as you fast or as you abstain from things, the only way you'll make it is through the Bible, the Word of God, as our Lord himself made it through his temptation by relying on the authority of the Word of God. So while we're not looking at that gospel passage, we are starting our Lenten journey here on the first Sunday of Lent, reflecting on the Word of God. This is also, if you will, kind of another piece of work on the teaching on authority. Did you give that sermon? The Father Aaron gave in the series that you're in right now. Read Scripture as a son or daughter of the Father. Primarily verse 19, particularly the first part of verse 19 and verse 20. Read Scripture as a son or daughter of your Father. Two, read Scripture with your spiritual grandparents. That second part of verse 19, that talks about saints and the household of God. Okay, in this sermon, usually preachers, we want to influence your practice. That's often what we're going after, is we want to influence how you practice your walk with Jesus. Or if you're not yet a believer, we want you to understand what you'd be taking up for practices. Now, I do want to influence your practice. My hope is that you will read the Bible with greater joy after hearing this sermon, and that you'll read it more. But I want to influence your thinking first. I'm actually going after your thinking first and foremost this morning. I would like to influence how you think about reading the Bible. I don't want you to ever again think about reading the Bible alone or interpreting the Bible alone. I want you to read it as a son. I want you to read it as a daughter. I want you to read it with your grandparents in their living room. I want you to read it with all kinds of crazy different dishes being cooked on the kitchen stove. Some of them African, some of them Asian, some of them Latino, some of them Caucasian, whatever it might be. I want you to read it globally and I want you to read it in an ancient way. Okay, that's what I want to do. I want to change your thinking about how you read your Bible. Read Scripture as a son or daughter of the Father. Okay, what you don't have in your bulletin, but the verse just preceding verse 19 is a really important verse to unlock how we read our Bibles. Because it, like all teachings on authority, and talking about the Bible, talking about authority, it always goes back to the Father. If you're familiar with Jesus' teachings, you see that when he talks about authority, he always goes back to the Father. He always says, this is, this is the one to whom I'm under authority. I do what he says to do. I teach what he says to teach. 
And our Father is one in whom we have access. Verse 18. For through Jesus, we, those who are followers of Jesus, both have access to one Holy Spirit to the Father. Which is simply to say this. That anyone that has given their lives to Jesus, who have repented of their sinful nature, now have access, closeness, constancy with your Father in heaven. And also to one another. For some of you, you actually have a life story that has completely prepared you to understand that. You actually know what it is to be close to your dad. You have that written in your life story. Many of you, though, do not. So you have to do the emotional and mental work to identify the fact that you don't have that in your own life story, but you do have it in your life story if you're a follower of Jesus. That you've had a complete born a new experience you have a father in heaven who is truly your father and it is incumbent upon you to do your spiritual work to work through with prayer and the bible and the church around you understanding that you now have a father in whom you have total access he's always thinking how can i have more time with you how can i tell you more about who i am access means that you know who he is I always wanted to know what my dad was like. I did not know what my father was like very much. Every once in a while, I would just go in his sock drawer. I don't know why I did this. I thought, what socks does the man wear? I was just like, who is this guy? You know, because he was hard to access. Your father in heaven is not like that. The sock drawer is wide open. This is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. Not to say that there's a mystery in God. Yes, there's mystery in God. But it's a mystery that draws us in, not a mystery that pushes us away. You have access to the Father. So we read the Bible as sons and daughters of a Father who's saying, I want you to know me. And I want to know you. And I want you to know one another. That the access goes to the Father, but also to one another. Verse 14 of Ephesians 2, so a few verses prior to 18 that we read this morning, and 19 says this, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh... That's a whole other sermon series. The dividing wall of hostility between us. We've come close to the Father. And because we come close to the Father, he wants his children close to one another. All his children. Especially the ones that you have a hard time with. We have the gift of access to the Father. We then read, as we understand that, that we have gift of access to the church. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Why? You have a Father who is close to you and wants you to be close to him in the Lord Jesus, who has given you as a gift. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There are several pictures or images or teachings that the Bible gives to help us understand the church. One of the key ones is household of God. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus said, my father and I will come and make our house with you, our home with you. Do not let that be too figurative. Don't let that be too, too spiritual. Don't, don't be sentimental about that. Like, that's sweet. Jesus and the Father make a home with me. That's uh, nice. No, 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 no. That's the church. We kind of make our home with you, which is the household of God, which Paul understands is a real thing. So you may be core to this community here, Emmanuel. You may be brand new to this community at Emmanuel. Let me tell you, this is how you live your life here in the church under the authority of the word of God with brothers and sisters who have one father together. You're no longer strangers and aliens. 
We may live our lives by ourselves at times, but we never live our lives alone. Family life is the Christian life. That's why Paul told, used the image household of God, where you live together in a family. You have an ancient family. Oh, my word, you have some of the most interesting grandmothers and grandfathers. Some of them are very eccentric, but they love you. And you're to learn to love those who have gone before you in the faith. And you have a global family. And it's okay to say that some of them seem pretty eccentric to us as well. And we seem very eccentric to them. But you've got a global family, and you have an ancient family. So the Father gives us the gift to himself. The Father gives us the gift of the household of God. And the Father gives us the gift of the scriptures. Now, that, that may not jump off the page. Let me work, work, work on this with me, okay? Look, look at 20 with me. So this household of God is built on the foundation, okay, so we're getting a picture. Paul's painting a picture like a good teacher. We have a house, right? And now we've got a foundation to the house. Apostles and prophets. Very important to understand this. On one hand, he means simply that. Prophets would be kind of capturing the, the, the teaching of the Hebrew scriptures, what we might call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Those are the prophets, and it's sort of broadly used for that whole thing. The apostles are those who were writing letters and scriptures that would be received by the church as the scriptures of God, the word of God. So if you will, you have actual people, prophets and apostles, but you also have them being used to say the entire scriptures. And the entire scriptures form the foundation of the household of God with Jesus, the word of God. It's called the word of God. So, that, so the scriptures are living. They actually came from lives, and they're being lived now. I had a Jewish rabbi explain to me, when we talk about scripture, we realize that Torah is a living reality. As a matter of fact, you need 10 Jews to form a quorum. There's only nine, and they have the Torah there. They have 10. It's alive. That's the understanding of our forebears, the Jewish people in this. Our family culture is a Bible culture. That's our family culture, a Bible culture, and we love that culture. Why? Because we love our Father, and we know how much he loves us. We want to know what he has to say to us. Hear this from John Calvin. John Calvin, Christian thinker, 16th century, he said this, Scripture is something alive and full of hidden power which leaves nothing in anyone untouched. Scripture leaves nothing in anyone untouched. That doesn't mean everyone that hears Scripture obeys it, but you're touched. Maybe you're tormented. Maybe you're consoled. My, my wife's grandfather uh, built a home in Oklahoma where he was from, and it was tornado country. So when he built his home, he built a foundation as deep as he built the first and second story high. Because he knew that storms and wind and menacing weather would come. And so he built a deep foundation that even if the first and second floor got blown away, that basement would be untouched. Do you know that the word of God is untouchable? Amen? You know that the word of God is eternal? You know that the word of God has always been, is now, and will be forever? Do you know that nothing can extinguish the power of the word of God? Take consolation in this. Your own doubt, which we all struggle with with the word of God. Every one of us, including me, cannot be extinguished. Your doubt cannot extinguish the word of God. The word of God is greater. 
what's happening within our beloved culture, and you should love our culture, but you should be wise about our culture, whatever's happening in our culture cannot extinguish the power of the word of God. It's ready for tornado season, and tornadoes have come, and they will come again. But it's deep. The foundation is deep. We're ready. I'll say this at the end again. We don't have to be afraid. So some of you may feel embattled in your following of Jesus' life amidst your co-workers or your, your, your biological family. I, I don't know. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to be insecure. You may feel it in your own life. We read scripture with our spiritual grandparents. Look at the second part of verse 19. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, so once I could drive, one of my favorite things to do growing up in Indianapolis, where I grew up, was to go visit my maternal grandparents. I'd go there, I'd walk in the door, and immediately I'd hear the grandfather clock, tick tock, tick tock, and I just would go. My grandfather would sit in his chair where he always sat in the living room. He wore a herringbone jacket, sometimes an ascot, horn-rimmed glasses, and he did absolutely smoke a pipe. He was right out of central casting. Grandma would sit there, called her Nana, she wore her Halston perfume, and she leaned in and listened carefully to everything I had to say. I still miss those times with my grandparents. Because I would come all worked up about something, and I'd talk to them about it, and they would be like, you don't have to be worked up about that. Or I'd be casual about something, and they would lean and basically say, you should be worked up about that. (laughs) They had this perspective that I didn't have. They'd live way more life than I hadn't lived. They absolutely loved me. They cherished every time they had with me, but they had something I didn't have. They had gone before me. They were followers of Jesus, not even devout, super dedicated followers of Jesus, but they believed in Jesus, they believed in authority, and they brought something to me. Church tradition, or you could call it apostle tradition, either way, is what I want to teach on right now, and it's a lot more like visiting your grandparents than going to a museum where you're noticing particular artifacts of a bygone era and have a fascination with antiquity, which is fine in itself, but that's not tradition. Tradition is a lot more like going to your grandparents who are alive and engaged and love you. Hear this from Christian thinker of 20th century, C.S. Lewis. He wrote this. Most of all, he says, perhaps we need intimate knowledge of the past. Not the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future. Now, Lewis is probably a genius, and that's a pretty amazing insight, even though it's pretty simple. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, the church has prophecy, which sometimes through a glass darkly can give us some idea of what may be coming at times, but it's not always constantly reliable. It's sometimes dim. We don't have the future, even in the prophetic ministry, like we have the past. It's simple. So Lewis is saying, study what you have, which is the past. And then he says this. Those who study the past, who are in relationship with their grandparents in my language, are in some degree immune from the great waterfall of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphone of this age. That does seem somewhat naive, doesn't it? Oh, for the days that the microphone was our problem. (laughs) The great waterfall of nonsense that pours from the constantly multiplying social media outlets of our age. How will you survive that waterfall? How will you know when it's nonsense? Your grandparents. 
the saints, which is say all those who have followed the Lord faithfully and gone before you. The Bible talks a lot about tradition. It's actually very important within the scriptures to understanding the scriptures. Now, some of you may have tevia trauma. This is an issue. That's Fiddler on the Roof. That's the guy who's, you know, tradition, all right? And you're thinking, I say tradition, and you go to Tevye, and so I would like to actually kind of climb into your imagination and unlock that. I, I'd like you to think Paul. I'd like you to think Jude. I'd like you to think Peter. I don't want you to think Tevye right now. Tevye is a problem for me. He actually tries to maintain some things in the musical that are, are worth maintaining, but he also uses tradition in a, in a violent way, particularly against his daughters. So I, I'm not saying Tevye. We, we there? I'm saying Paul. Okay. Well, what does Paul say as one of the great thinkers of, of Christianity about tradition? This is actually really important. Paul writes on tradition quite significantly. And when he uses the word tradition, and this is important to understand, tradition is a specific word. It has a specific application. The word is paradosis. And what the word means is handing over or handing down. Do you hear the personification? You see a person in that? It's hands. All right? So tradition is the handing down from one generation to another, the teachings of the Bible, the following of the Bible. And Paul is actually very concerned about this. Let's get over here. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll just read this to you. He says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the paradosis. Hold to that which was handed over. The translation in my scriptures is traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He says later in chapter 3 of the same book, 2 Thessalonians, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accordance with the handing over, not in accordance with the tradition that you received from us. What's Paul doing? He knows that people are taking the Hebrew Scriptures and they're twisting them to fit their own constructs. And he's saying, look, there are those of us who are teaching the Hebrew Scriptures in light of the resurrection of Jesus. We're teaching this. We're bringing this. We've been given authority as apostles. We've seen the resurrected Jesus. So that what we're teaching about the Bible is extremely important to understanding the Bible. It's not equal to the Bible, what we're teaching about the Bible, but it's not disconnected from the Bible either. This is really important. Martin Luther, 16th century thinker, put it this way. Tradition, scripture is the light. Tradition is the lantern. All right? You can have a light without a lantern. But the lantern carries the light. It, it's what passes down from one generation to another. So all of you have the responsibility of understanding the light, the scriptures, but you also have the responsibility of carrying that lantern and handing it down to your children, if God's given you children, to hang it on to the next generation, which all of us are responsible for. Tradition are like our spiritual grandparents. So this said, who, who are they? Well, it's early church. We particularly look at the first 10 centuries of the church where the church was undivided. It's unimaginable to us as postmoderns that there was an undivided church for almost as long as there's been a divided church. But the first thousand years, while there were Eastern and Western church realities and global realities, even then, there was not a formal division like there is now throughout the church. So we look at those first 10 centuries and say, what was it like in the undivided church? We look at that. We look at the Reformation church, when their desire was to go back to the early church to bring correction to the abuses of the church. That's really important. And they're saying the Reformation era, which is 16th century. One phrase that's very important in understanding 
tradition in the Bible is this, sola scriptura. It's a good phrase for you to know, S-O-L-A. I'm going to distinguish that with something else, so I want to get that clear. S-O-L-A, which is that the final authority is scripture alone, but not a scripture that is alone. All right? If you're writing stuff down, that's worth writing down. The final authority, all right, is scripture alone, but not a scripture that is alone. I would also refer to this as a nourishing tradition. Luther has his lantern and his light, but let me go to food. Because I'm an Anglican and we love talking about food. All right? My, we have this recipe book in our house called Nourishing Traditions. It's an incredible recipe book that says all these traditions of cooking and making food have been lost. And so we need to reclaim the ways in which food has been made. But it says it isn't always the case that everything this tradition works. So, for example, a woman talks about seeing her mom cut off the edge of a pot roast and put it in the pot every time. She says, Mom, why do you always cut off the edge of the pot roast? Does it make it more tender? She says, No. I just saw my mom do it. She goes, well, why did your mom do it? I'll, have to, I'll ask her. She goes to her mom and asks her, why did you always cut the edge of the pot roast? She goes, because I didn't have a pan big enough. <laughs> That's not nourishing. But then she reads about the fact that grains need to be soaked so that the enzymes within the grain can be fully released. So now she figured out why her grandmother soaked her oatmeal all night before she cooked it the next day. That was a nourishing tradition. That was being handed down from one generation to another. And, when that, and that's lost, then the nutrients can be lost. Right? It's still oatmeal, but the fullness of receiving that oatmeal into your system can be lost. There's a nourishing tradition that, that, that Scripture comes to us. Okay. We can take Scripture, though, not as our grandparents, but as our unknown second cousin or even our crazy, dangerous uncle. And for many of us, if you were brought up in an evangelical background, which I assume some of you were and some of you were not, but if you were, you were trained within an evangelical institution. It's possible, actually, what you were trained in is not scripture as grand, tradition as grandparents, but tradition as unknown second cousin, doesn't matter at all, or actually tradition as crazy, dangerous uncle who you would never invite to watch your kids, okay? The idea is that tradition is not relevant to scripture. It's not needed, or it might even be damaging to scripture. In this thinking, the second cousin understanding of tradition the individual interpretation is always exalted, always valued over a corporate reading. It becomes highly individualistic very, very quickly. Now, let me be clear. The intentions behind this tradition are very strong. The intentions are to make the Bible important and to take Scripture seriously. That's how this tradition started. This tradition is not sola, but solo scriptura. S-O-L-O. It comes out of another 16th century movement called the Radical Reformation, whereby the reader of Scripture, the individual, is given stunning authority, more authority than the church had ever given to an individual to understand Scripture by themselves. It's also a very strong current in contemporary evangelicalism, which again, some of you track with and some of you don't, and it's okay. But Peter himself, in 2 Peter, is very concerned. He says, we never want to interpret that which is being given, 2 Peter chapter 1, I won't quote it right now, on our own. It takes Scripture seriously, but it does not take Scripture's teaching on the church seriously. Household of God, foundation, apostles and prophets, Jesus chief cornerstone. Nor does it take our sinful nature seriously, because as Father Aaron read already this morning, we can deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The truth is in the scriptures, the foundation, 
and then the truth can be found among our grandparents as we listen to them collectively. So who is tradition? Who is, not what is tradition, now who is tradition? First of all, let me say this. Scripture is understandable. It's understandable. Don't you ever let somebody tell you that you have to have a particular degree in Scripture to understand and obey and read the Scriptures. That can be a hindrance to understanding the Scriptures, a particular degree. It can also be an incredible help to the wider church of God, and we need excellent scholarship. It's under the authority of the Word of God. But you can understand the Bible. When I talk about reading the Bible with a community, I'm specifically referring to those passages that are especially difficult to understand, whereby you go, I don't know what that means. And at that point, I want to say, you're not alone figuring out what that means. People have been figuring out what that means over the centuries and throughout the globe. Well, who is tradition? Well, first of all, tradition comes from the creeds. The creeds, which we'll say in just a moment, the Apostles' Creed, give us a distillation of what's most important about who God is. But those creeds didn't fall out of heaven. It wasn't somebody who went, oh, my word, it's a meteor creed. Well, I found a creed. <laughs> you know, we should put it in the middle of the church and we should all get around it and say what it says. That's weird. <laughs> and this is really important because all of a sudden I hear evangelicals. They're discovering the creeds. They're like, the creeds, the creeds. And like we're prone to do as evangelicals, we make that its own thing like we make everything else its own thing. We individualize the creeds. And then we say, well, if the creed doesn't speak to it, then I'm free to do it. Well, that doesn't understand the creeds. The creeds weren't meteors. The creeds came from whom? Bishops. They came from bishops. That's the history. They gathered together when there were controversies in the church and said, as fathers in God, who are actually the teachers of the church, we need to gather together and we need to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church about the Bible. And they gathered in councils. They gathered in seven critical councils in the first 10 centuries of the United Church. And then the people of God would receive their teachings and they would say, that sounds right. That was really an important part of the process. That sounds true to who God is, to who Jesus is. So we have the creeds, that's tradition. We have the councils and the bishops that started in Acts chapter 15, by the way, where we have our first council. This was really important again to John Calvin, 16th century thinker, who was very connected to scripture and tradition as grandparents. Calvin said this, even though I'm writing many new things, he said, they may seem new to you. He says, with the ancient church, we deny that we have any disagreement. We have no core disagreement with our spiritual grandparents. Nay, rather, we revere the ancient church as our mother. That was John Calvin, for those of you who are familiar with him. We have the creeds, we have the councils and the bishops. We have the early thinkers of the church, who are sometimes called the fathers of the church. And they wrote lots of stuff. And not everything they wrote is necessarily to be followed. They did write within cultural context. So we have to do our work of understanding where is there a through line in the early church thinkers of the undivided church? Where were they operating within the councils and the creeds? And we, we listen to them like we listen to our grandparents who aren't always right, but have a lot of wisdom that we may not have. And so we listen to the creeds, we listen to the councils and the bishops, and we listen to the early fathers. Finally, this is really important. We listen to the embodied life of the church over the centuries, which means what? We listen to how the church has prayed. This is really important to theology. Theology and prayer are linked like that. There's an ancient phrase, lex orande, lex credende. As the church has prayed, so she has believed. What does that mean? It means you're looking at the prayer and practice of the church over the centuries. So just because something isn't in the creed, you go, well, did any councils deal with the question? Did any early church thinkers deal with this question? 
How has the church practiced her worship? Do you realize that what you're doing with this liturgy, this isn't, this isn't a bulletin. This is how the church has prayed for centuries. This is theology. You're praying theology. You're engaging theology with your body and your mind. It's all integrated within the gospel understanding of who we are as persons. So you say, how has the church prayed? What, what, have, what have been the liturgies, the prayers of the church to understand all this? You know that our prayer book and the, our tradition is 85% scripture? It better be. Because let me tell you, after 30 plus years of praying it daily and weekly, it's all in my head. And it's also right here. It better be, because my kids have been raised in it now can speak it like that. Right, because they've heard it over and over again. We didn't say they memorized it, so it's great to memorize things. Okay. We need all four for nourishing tradition. We need the creeds. We need the councils and the bishops. We need the early church thinkers, the fathers. We need the prayer and practice of the church. Let me conclude with this. Let me do a case study, okay? So how do you handle this when you're in a problematic passage or problematic idea? Let's take sexual practice before marriage. So you're dating somebody or you're not dating them, but you're having sexual practice. I'm going to let Father Aaron spell out exactly what that means. That's his job. But just to give you a very quick note, this is good right here. All right. Listen to your grandparent right now. I'm giving you wisdom. Okay. So you're moving into sexual practice beyond, okay? You're moving into beyond. And you go, oh, well, I know there's teachings about marriage and the intimate union of male and female in marriage, Ephesians chapter 5. And I know there's a call to be careful how you bond with somebody else with your body, First Corinthians chapter 6. But, you know, I read some scholars and... Like, they had PhDs from Princeton, and they're saying that was ancient Near Eastern practice, and that maybe we need to rethink this stuff, and they're really smart, smarter than I am, and so, I mean, maybe the Bible isn't reliable on this matter, and golly, would I love the Bible not to be reliable on this matter. And you go, but you know what? Now I'm an Anglican, so I'm going to go read the Creed. So I'm going to read the Apostles' Creed, and you read through the Apostles' Creed on Sunday, you go, wow, it didn't mention premarital sex. Huh, this is awesome. But in the Creed, it says that you believe in the church. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed makes it even more specific. I believe in the church. It's the fourth belief used in Nicene Creed. So you believe in the church. What do you, what do you say when you believe in the church? Well, one thing you're saying is, I believe the church is gathered with spiritual fathers and thinkers and theologians through the ages, men and women, and have gotten clear on how we practice our faith. And they were very clear in the early church. Gregory Nyssa on virginity. Don Chrysostom, marriage between male and female. They were very clear about how we conduct ourselves in purity before we make ourselves one in marriage. They were super clear about this. There's actually an unbelievable lamp carrying this light. And you go, well, how has the church prayed about this? Well, the church for centuries understood that because people do fall into sin, that during Lent is a season of repentance and confession. And there were prayers specifically for ways in which you may have fallen into sexual sin prior to marriage. And the church has practiced that. And then at Easter, the night before Easter, you would celebrate being cleansed of your sins and forgiven. And you dance like crazy because you've been cleansed and freed from the power of sin. When you read your Bible tonight or tomorrow morning, I want you to read it like you're in your grandparents' living room or use my grandparents' living room if that helps. I want you to read it with your global brothers and sisters making all kinds of different things in the house and talking in different languages and with different cultural costumes and customs and clothes. 
I want you to read it, realizing that you never read the Bible alone. But you read it with global brothers and sisters and ancient grandparents who will give you a lantern to carry the light of the inextinguishable word of God. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be insecure. We don't need to be defensive. No, we can walk in joy. Like I walked out of my grandparents' living room every time I visited them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.